Let's get into it, Jeff. We're getting into it. <laughs> Let's get deep. This is No Show. I'm Matt Brown. This is Jeff Borman that I'm talking to. And this week's episode is on passports. Um, the world's most famous athletic competition begins in Beijing in a couple of days. And as competitors used to gather from across the GNC, this year's participants descend upon China, and it got us thinking about the current state of international travel. Of course, economics and climate and political upheaval have always been powerful forces that affect this competition, and 2022 is no different. The NHL, the NBA, pro tennis, obviously, and many other bodies that you know kind of move back and forth between borders for business purposes are now concerned in a way that I don't think we've seen in our lifetime uh, of crossing borders. But first, a little bit of just 101 geography. Jeff, how many countries are there? I think that's kind of a subjective thing. Uh, the UN recognizes 193 countries. Of those, though, for example, only say a dozen recognize Taiwan as a country, like Guatemala, Honduras, like the Marshall Islands, the Vatican. So technically, Taiwan's called Republic of China, which probably doesn't help the case differentiating itself from the place that we all call China, known as the People's Republic of China. Like the name probably doesn't help their claim for independence. But overall, I'd say, Matt, there are probably 210 to 220 places around the world that think of themselves as countries. The UN calls them member states, probably to avoid any discussions on what really defines a country. So what defines a country? I think commonly you'd start to consider a place a country if it has a permanent population, consistent economic activity, monetary sovereignty, right? Do you have control over your own currency and monetary policy, a national defense system, internationally recognized borders? In many ways, a country is really determined more by the other countries than yourself. You often hear about you know billionaires who want to go off and buy an island, make it their own country. For that to work, other countries have to call you a country. It doesn't really work that way. How many countries have you traveled to? Somewhere north of 70. I think you've told me at some point that you have spent close to 25% of your adult life in hotel beds. Is that true? <laughs> I, think that, I, I think that's right. I think it's probably my wife who actually keeps track of that. I've lived abroad a few different times. I was a high school exchange student in France. Uh, I lived in Luxembourg. Uh, I lived in Hong Kong. Nearly all the most passionate moments of my life have begun with stories of being really out of place. I'm addicted to being a foreigner, if you will. So let's let's talk about the meat of what we're talking about, which is about passing through immigration. And by that metric, uh, there's a thing called the Henley Index, which seems to be the, the standard bearer of passport rankings. The index includes 199 different passports and 227 different travel destinations. And the total score for each passport is equal to the number of destinations for which no visa is required. So the value is equal to one. So it's essentially the most hassle-free passport. What gets me to the most places with the least hassle in the world? And where's this data from? Whoa, it's from our old friends at the International Air Transport Association. IATA. IATA, they compile all this data. And then different organizations come in. I think um, Henley Index has a little relationship with them. So they get fed this data and then it all goes into this list. Japan and Singapore consistently and currently rank at the top. Uh, so those two are tied for first. Passport holders of those two places can go to 192 destinations. Right after them, you have Germany and South Korea. Uh, they're tied for second. They can go to 190 destinations. 
And then you have a flood over the next 10 or so countries, you have a flood of EU. So Finland, Italy, Spain, Denmark, you know, the Netherlands, Ireland, Portugal, tied for sixth. There are a bunch of countries, uh, Belgium, New Zealand, Norway, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, and yes, the United States. We can get into, I think, 186 countries. And I think Americans have sort of an old school view of their passport. And that view is that we're number one. <laughs> As with a lot of old school views, we're, we're number one. And that if I want to go anywhere in the world for business, pleasure, or the occasional quadrennial sporting event that started in ancient Greece, I can just drive to the airport and go. These rankings, though, I think belie larger complexities, Right. Yeah, I think ranking the value of a passport is also a very subjective thing. If I'm a super patriotic Canadian, and to me, the Canadian passport is by far the most valuable I could hold. A passport's value is like you were just describing, it gets you into places, but it also gets you back into the place you call home. Right, so if getting back into Canada is your ultimate priority as a traveler. There's no more valuable passport in the world than a Canadian passport. And that makes it pretty difficult for publications to quantify ranking. Right? So the most standard metric, how many countries you allow people to enter without visas. Having spent a lot of time in places like Japan and Singapore, I have to believe that in part, what make one of the things that makes them so valuable is because the receiving country has great confidence that the holder will eventually return home. Japanese and Singaporean, they can go anywhere in the world because people know those countries are great and they're patriots and they're loyal and they love it and their citizens are all going to get back on a plane at the end of the day. On the flip side of all this, um, the one at the bottom of the Henley Index is Afghanistan. Right. I mean, I think that's the other end of that spectrum, too, is that host countries create barriers to entry for citizens of other countries. And they frequently cite terrorist threats, but probably a bigger concern is an unwillingness to harbor refugees. I mean, by pure volume, right? Uh, any sensible person knows that 99% of Syrians are not terrorists, but 90% might stay in a first world democracy if given a chance not to return to a country where you get mustard gassed for not pledging allegiance to an evil dictator. You know, they're unlikely to leave once they get here. And it's politically expedient to tell the existing voters who can put you in office that keeping those people out is really important. Uh, and, you know, Afghans don't exactly get to vote on that matter. Of course, you know, I think with countries like Switzerland and Luxembourg, they, you know, they get a little bit of heat. Critics of these uh, these kinds of indexes and rankings and critics of just of how immigration works of what, and of which there are many and deservedly so. You know, they'll talk about, you know, kind of the level of privilege that goes along with having a, a passport from one of those countries. You know, this has always been the case. You've always had these kind of principalities uh, and nations that live in a space of privilege, and th those passports are therefore desirable. But I, you know, I'm curious as to will that ever change? I mean, I, I feel like that's always going to be the case. You know, Singapore's a good example of that too. You know, like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, the Singapore passport didn't really mean anything. Uh, but now, you know, it, 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 its very value is the fact that it has been able to adjust to a world economy. Would you say that? Yeah, I think it is interesting that our conversation and a lot of these rankings identify really small city-states. You, you said Singapore, Hong Kong, a place I lived for a few years. Uh, really small countries and small city-states do have an advantage in that way. Yeah. And a lot of it's tax havens and uh, there's other attractions that we can talk about. But, I mean, I think Luxembourg is one of the best passports. I mean, to stick to the countries I've lived in, you have visa-free travel to nearly anywhere in the world. 
but beyond the ability just to get in and out of Mozambique on a day's notice, it really comes down to what are the benefits of the home country too. Again, that's really hard for an index to capture. Luxembourg has a generally low level of taxation, especially on a European comparison, and particularly on capital gains, which is really attractive to wealthy global-minded citizens. It allows dual citizenship, uh, a, a really big deal, right? You don't have to renounce, if you want a Luxembourg passport, you don't have to renounce the other one or ones that you hold. So a Luxembourg passport holder to me has all the advantages of the EU and the US if you're an American, and specifically the nuanced benefits that just come from living in Le Grand Duché. A Swiss passport is similar. Uh, it's probably more well-known. It's definitely well more known than a Luxembourg uh, passport for its economic and banking benefits. But you also get things like extradition policies might matter to you, right? A Swiss citizen can never be deported. If that's a big deal to you, that passport might be the most valuable in the world. Spouses are automatically granted residence and citizenship conveys to children of Swiss passport holders. So uh, depending on exactly what matters to you, that, that could be the most powerful passport in the world. But which passport do you think is the hardest to judge these days? You know, the one in biggest flux is probably the UK, the British passport. At many points in the last few centuries, it could have easily been argued as the most valuable. Brexit, however, has cast an incredible uncertainty on the UK. Uh, no longer does a UK passport get unfettered access to the EU. Uh, there's now such a wide range of possibilities, too, for what could happen. Does Brexit make the UK a pariah state? That's probably too severely negative. Uh, but if Northern Ireland and Scotland seceded, then there is no UK, right? That just leaves a com combination of England and Wales. And that's a very real possibility. Scotland was only a few percentage points from voting their own independence back in 14. Now that the UK voted to leave the EU, those scales may have tipped in favor of getting out of the UK and joining the EU as an independent country. Similarly, in Northern Ireland, the troubles subsided, but the chance to reunite Ireland now is a subject again after 20 good years of calms. With no UK, what value does just an English passport have? It certainly has value, mainly because of London and the financial center, but does it become a city-state like Singapore or Dubai? Heathrow is a global transportation hub. Probably feels less valuable, though, in a post-Brexit world. Which passport do you think is the most underrated? Uh, a whole lot of opinion on this one. I would go with Panama, though, right? It's it's a fairly well-governed country. It's a tax-friendly banking center located right at the epicenter of North and South America. But it's all about the canal, man. The only place in the world that I think all three superpowers would rush to defend on one minute's notice is the Panama Canal. Suez is important. Uh, we saw that last year when it got blocked up for about 10 days. We saw what that did to the global supply chain. But Egypt is frankly pitifully governed. For several generations, it's squandered its importance in the region commercially and politically. It's totally wasted its influence. Instead of going through the Suez Canal to go around the Cape of Good Hope, which is all the way around South Africa and back up, takes an additional 5,000 miles and 10 days. Panama is exponentially more important. Not only does it save 8,000 miles, but it saves 44 days in transit. Think of the costs of that. You're shipping a tanker. You don't even think about the goods that you're holding and their value. Just the tanker itself, the size of a small skyscraper. And you, instead of going through a small canal, and then you rest in a lake for a little while, and then you go through another canal, uh, the risk factor for navigating through Tierra del Fuego makes the canal's value immensely higher, right? Imagine going through nudging up against Antarctica in, in winter, 
So 14,000 ships a year pass through Panama annually. And I saw an estimate a while ago that that's about 6% of global trade. So no country will let Panama fall into unfriendly hands. Some other tidbits uh, from the Henley Index. Uh, Vatican City, 27th, tied with Uruguay, which kind of surprised me. You just kind of figure if you've got it. Well, first of all, I wonder who, I mean, I guess Vatican City has a ton of people who live in it, but it's like, oh boy, you just forget that passport. It kind of gets you into almost everywhere. The UK and the US have slightly improved in the rankings. You know, in 2014, I think they shared the top spot in this. So really only in the course of eight or nine years, we've, we've fallen quite a bit. Uh, I think the, the Brexit thing and then some political choices that, that the US has made over the, over the last uh, six or seven years or so have probably contributed to that. So, you know, you, you've kind of seen the, the, these two older powers come down a little bit on the rankings, and then Asian and EU states have risen, which brings us back to China, as always. China is tied for 64th on this list with Oman. Hong Kong, however, is 18th. And that makes a great example of how quickly passport status can change. To, to the, the Hong Kong and China comparison, for most of my lifetime, certainly during the economic rise of China that began in the late 80s, a Hong Kong passport could have easily been argued on a podcast like this to be the most valuable in the world. It was protected by British rule of law, I say was, uh, with total access to mainland China. Right? Commercially, there was probably no more valuable piece of paper. Say what you will about the Politburo. Human rights is not their focus. Long-range planning really is, though. When the country was at its lowest point in a 5,000-year history, it was about, say, 130 years ago, right, around the Opium Wars, something like that, it made a 100-year lease to Britain for Hong Kong and regained control of the, you know, the SAR in 1997. They patiently planned a century in advance when they knew they couldn't take on British warships and the British Navy. They'd lose in battle. They'd lose more ground in mainland China. Instead of doing it, they took the long approach. So you can have it for 100 years and we get it back. And then they just executed the plan. Don't fact check me on this, but around the 90s, when Shanghai Stock Exchange opened, the PRC made a rule that any new listings on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange would have to have a mirror listing in Shanghai. And at that time, China needed Hong Kong. It was something like 20% of China's total G GDP. They have methodically reduced their economic reliance on Hong Kong to under 4% in 20 years. They've built the city of Shenzhen of 15 million people the world's second largest container ship port, right on the border of Hong Kong. Literally, it was an uninhabited swamp 25 years ago. So today, China can export a world's worth of trinkets without Hong Kong. It can control a stock exchange without international regulators because they can do it in Shanghai by their own rules. They're brilliant planners. So perhaps the final blow to Hong Kong's independence was delivered when China knew that the world was so preoccupied with COVID that it wouldn't step in and intervene when they remove the remaining Western legal protections. The one country, two systems approach is basically dead. And the world didn't care. Honestly, Matt, that saddens me deeply. Hong Kong is probably my favorite city in the world. And all that to say, anyway, it's unlikely that any passport in the world has lost its value faster in our lifetimes than Hong Kong. Also, guess what? Henley and Partners, uh, they also offer services to help broker quote unquote, top tier citizenship programs. And that is a euphemism for a phrase I think a lot of people know, golden passports. Malta became kind of the poster child for this decade or so ago, and other countries have followed suit. 
but the but the EU is kind of inching towards sanctions to quash that in in, in Malta and in uh, in Montenegro. But a bunch of different countries all around the world do it. And this is a situation where you essentially rich people come in, <laughs> or I don't know, I don't know how rich they are, but I think if you've got the kind of cash that we're talking about, you, you, you're probably in a, in a pretty good position in life. They, if you donate to the country through um, some kind of fund that, that they've set up, um, you become eligible uh, not only for citizenship or passport, holding a passport, but also for a potential residency there. For instance, uh, Antigua and Barbuda offers one of the most competitive citizenship programs in the Caribbean. If you want to lay down $100,000, I think you could be uh, very high in the queue to, to get a passport from them. Austria, for instance, has one of the world's strongest passports. If you've got 3 million euros, you can uh, put yourself in line for one of those. Granada, has, it, it's the only Caribbean citizenship program that offers applicants visa-free access to China and options for that start for like about 150,000. Of course, you got Malta um, and, you know, it goes all the way down the line. And it's an impressive number of countries. I think you kind of think, well, it's just sort of states kind of on the edges that are that are trying to, to figure out a way to get cash. But even Canada has a uh, kind of a pay, pay for play system. You know, one of the examples that's always brought up with the Golden Passport in Malta was that, you know, it, it, a, a lot of people... Um, a lot of businesses and business people from Russia, China, the Middle East would use it because, uh, you know, once you pay your toll, you get a, a you know a passport. Now you are able to get free access to the EU, and that's something that that I I don't think Americans have ever really had to think about because our passport was so strong for so long. And I wonder if that I wonder if that'll come up as as an option, like almost like as part of somebody's sales budget. You know, if entrepreneurs and businesses. Uh, the more business that we end up doing uh, with China and the more freedom that we want to have. Is there a possibility here where U.S. business people will say, sure, I'll have a Grenadian passport in addition to my uh, to my U.S. passport and expense that on the on the Chase Sapphire card for 150000 And then I will be able to fly off and do as much business over there as I like without having to answer pesky questions. What do you think? Do you think that's... Grenada, the new Hong Kong. The new Hong Kong. Totally. Hey, don't don't laugh. Don't no, laugh. Maybe, maybe we should do one where we explore the, the price of renouncing citizenship. I had a friend of mine, coworker in Hong Kong when I was there, who had is an American. He had been out of the country for nearly his entire career, which is at that point, 25, 30 years. And he had, we celebrated with him the day that he had finally lost U.S. citizenship. He, and it takes 10 years to do it. So even no matter where you live, if you are a U.S. passport holder or a citizen, the U.S. will continue to tax your earnings. He hadn't lived for three decades in the U.S., but he had been paying tax the whole time. So the minute he had said, uh, go to the consulate, hand over the passport, I no longer want to be a citizen. From that point forward, it starts a 10-year clock that you still get taxed by the U.S. Oh, the tax man. George Harrison knew. One of the easiest reads on this subject, a really enjoyable read, it's a book called Open Borders by Brian Kaplan. Uh, it was written pre-COVID and it's become probably more important since. He builds a case very simply based on both humanitarian logic and economic impact for the total unrestricted free movement of people. And up until 2020, there had really been a century's worth of progress in creating a world where people can move freely. Uh, the geopolitics that lie beneath the pandemic may have set us back just as far. Jeff, are you ready for your question of the week? I am. 
What's been your worst passport experience? This is such an easy answer. I'm just not sure it's fit for a PG podcast. When I was living in Luxembourg, I took a day trip uh, with a couple couple friends. And on the way back, uh, we went to Maastricht, home of the EU, the foundation of the EU. Uh, so it's a very easy day trip from Luxembourg. But to get there, there's not a direct train. So you have to transit through a Belgian city, uh, Liège. So we went up for our little day trip. And on the way home, we stopped in Liège to change trains. And at the time, I was in my young 20s, and I looked like a vagrant. And I was identified by Belgian border cops as exactly such. Coming from the Netherlands, which is, of course, a country where they allow uh, marijuana tourism, they were just convinced that we had something somewhere on us. We'll share the rest of the story in private. They made that day very uncomfortable. As it turns out, my friend and I were able to get out of there. Had I not been lucky enough to have lived in France and speak fluent French, I don't think we would have made it out without doing a little time. We had nothing on us, but I was absolutely convinced it would have been planted if I wasn't able to get us out of there. Oh, boy. I have done Who would that. Who Belgium for that answer? I know. And I, I have done that exact route. I stayed in Maastricht and went down to Luxembourg. And I think I did it in reverse from what you're talking about, but I've done that exact train route. And you'd figure, God, weed, give me a break. Don't all these countries have that figured out? And like, it's not that big Benelux. of a deal. <laughs> it's like, it's Benelux. What, where, who are you arresting? Why? You don't need the money, really. <laughs> You're making too, too many chocolates and, you know, sumptuous meals <laughs> and, yeah, geez. All right, Matt, I'm going to turn the tables on you this week. I'm asking you a question you haven't heard. Do it. As a lifelong Cincinnati Bengals fan, who is celebrating every second leading up to the Super Bowl 56. And you, both a split childhood between Georgia and Louisiana. Will you be rooting for the Georgian number one draft pick, Matthew Stafford, in the Super Bowl, mm. or LSU's number one draft pick, Joe Burrow? Oh, boy. Oh, Lord. Your alma mater is on the line. I think the Matt Stafford story is great. And I'm glad that he's had a chance to shine because I feel like he was in circumstances after he left University of Georgia in which he he was not able to shine. Even though I know the Rams have worked hard, it's a great team. They've spent a lot of time uh, kind of in the doldrums. It is impossible to not feel something for the city of Cincinnati and for the Bengals. You know, I'm probably emotional about this. Howard Hesman just died, star of WKRP in Cincinnati. I think he died the day that the day that the Bengals clinched a uh, Super Bowl spot. And I feel like the diehard fans of Southern Ohio and Northern Kentucky deserve this. This would make a great story. It's Cinderella. I'm going to go Bengals on this. Podcast United. Have a great, great night. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Fun as always.